0: So Jay, I've been thinking about Galactus. That is a very large subject, Miles. I see what you did there. Anyway, has Galactus ever had any heralds from Earth? Oh yeah, he's had a ton. Let's see, there was Nova... I thought the Nova Corps were Zandarian. No, this Nova was
1: actually Frankie Ray, the daughter of the guy who invented the Human Torch. Nah, she's not part of Nova Corps, it's just her codename. Speaking of torches, actually, uh, Johnny Storm was a herald of Galactus for a while. But he wasn't actually a torch at the time. Uh, He and Sue had swapped powers, so he was Invisible Boy. So, superheroes.
0: Uh, That makes sense, I
1: guess. Believe it or not, Galactus has had at least one baseline human as a herald, too. Seriously?
0: That's a pretty tall order for a
1: regular person. Well, they were pretty extraordinary as regular people go.
0: What, like Nick Fury? Aunt May. (laughs) What?
1: I'm Jay Edidin, and I'm Miles Stokes, and we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 198 of Jay and Miles explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. Man, it's a shame how all the other episodes got destroyed, and now there are
0: just 198 of them left. Oh, I see what you did there, that took me a sec. Okay, so now you're saying that our podcast, which was once a potent metaphor for minorities, has now been in many ways defanged and made irrelevant. Damn, that got bleaker than I was expecting. I'm just saying, I think M-Day was a very bad move for the X-Universe, and I'm really glad they're finally undoing it these days. I guess they have been for a while, it's been ambiguous and confusing.
1: Fortunately, unlike the X-Universe, uh, we, we count upward. I guess the X-Universe
0: does too sometimes.
1: Anyway, there were more than 198 of them almost immediately, because a bunch of people who they thought had lost
0: their powers turned out not to have. Yeah, as I recall, Iceman basically just had mutant performance anxiety. Like, he still had his powers, but he thought he didn't. I think that's happened to him more than once, which is kind of sad and hilarious. It does fit Bobby Drake. It's consistent.
1: Yeah, yeah, that kid has some issues. All right. So today, today we are talking uh, not about Bobby Drake, well, briefly about Bobby Drake, but in context of the last two of the Excalibur special editions.
0: Now, you may have noticed that we just did an Excalibur episode, and we just did another Excalibur special edition recently before that. But you know what? We like Excalibur. Although we don't always like their special editions. So it's weird, like Wolverine had a bunch of special editions and one-shots, of course that makes sense, it's Wolverine. But for some reason in this time period, Excalibur just kept doing them, sometimes more than one a year. And like, I know Excalibur is certainly well regarded in the Davis era, but most of these were during the fill-in era, where it, you know, wasn't. Yeah, I have no
1: idea what's going on with these, especially given that multiple ones of them have a different artist for every chapter, which makes sense for some stories and otherwise is kind of a bizarre move. And the fact that he did it multiple times kind of speaks to it as a formula. And I'm I'm wondering basically what the plan was here
0: and also on what kind of timeline these were produced. Right, yeah, because the two special editions we're going to be covering today, which are Air Apparent and XX Crossing, they're both by Scott Lobdell, They both have eight chapters with a different artist team for each chapter, and they both split the team up so that it's about an individual Excalibur member in most of each of those chapters. Like, as formulas go, that's a very specific one, and I'm not sure why they would choose to do it. I mean, that said, these are kind of fun. I mean, I like them more than The Possession, but still weird.
1: Well, it's not just that. In some of the other special editions we've seen, there's a disconnect from current continuity that makes me think that they were written significantly, significantly before they came out and significantly before the comics around when they came out were even plotted. Which, again, yeah, makes me wonder how connected these are to the rest of what's going on and to what extent they were worked into versus parallel to the rest of the Excalibur um, publishing plan.
0: Yeah, hard to say. I'm not sure. Uh, But regardless, these are the last two Excalibur Special Editions. So after this, we're just going to see annuals like we do with all the other X-Books. And uh, they're kind of fun, and I say we should talk about them. All right, well, let's start then with Era Parent. This is one of two
1: Special Editions that came out in 1991. The other was The Possession, which we talked about a few episodes ago. Air Parent is hands-down the better of the two, despite very clearly
0: being a 16-bit platformer. It kind of is, yeah. Like, it's got all the different missions, each character has their own special ability, their own antagonist, which feels kind of like a boss. The Lockheed Chapter would be a bonus level, like a hidden secret level. <laughs> oh, it totally would. Certainly more fun than just punching a car a whole lot. I never understood that in Street Fighter 2. Why is your bonus level punching a car, or kicking it, or fireballing it? While I can't justify it in Street Fighter 2, I can
1: absolutely imagine a comic like this where Captain Britain's chapter is just like 10 pages of him punching a car. Just a regular car, not like a supervillain car or anything.
0: Not like it's Inferno and the car is animated, nope. it's just nope. someone's car.
1: Nope, he's just, he's just punching a car. It's probably going to turn out to be his car, given, given how things work. Or, or his boss's car. I, does Roma have a car?
0: Uh, I'd imagine she has some kind of a mystical interdimensional chariot or something. I don't know. Anyway, the point is,
1: I would I would absolutely read a lot of pages of Captain Britain punching a car, which does not happen in the course of Air Apparent. I also want to talk a little bit about the title, which is kind of nonsense. Like it's obviously it's it's I'd say it's it's Air A I R Apparent, and there's a character, part of whose name is Air, but. Other than that, there's zero connection, and it's it's kind of forced.
0: For me, though, that does fit early Scott Lobdell works. I mean, he's all about wordplay, some of which kind of falls apart if you examine it, but it's still fun if you don't examine it.
1: Man, the thing is, that stuff only works if you've got the substance to support it. And, you know, Lobdell is someone some of whose work I like very much on X-Men. This is
0: a little rougher than that. That's fair. That's fair. But, you know, with the Possession as a baseline to compare it to, I'm feeling pretty good about this, especially XX Crossing, but we'll get to that second. Meanwhile, though, Air Apparent. So, Jay, what is the deal with Air Apparent? Well, we open with a briefing from Brigadier
1: Alassane Stewart of the Weird Happenings organization. This is in Chapter 1. Chapter 1 and the epilogue are drawn by... Ron, Ron Lim, inked by Al Gordon, colored by Glynis Oliver, and lettered by Steve Dutro. Both of the books we're talking about today have a different creative team for each chapter.
0: Yeah, and usually a different focal character.
1: So, Alison Stewart, as you may recall, is Brigadier Alison Stewart. She is in charge of the Weird Happenings Organization,
0: which is, is basically Britain's X-Files, but funded. And I gotta say, the outfit she's wearing here is fucking great. Usually she's just in sort of a generic green military-ish outfit, which, you know, fine. I buy that the head of Who would wear that, who is basically based on unit from Doctor Who, so okay. But in this case, she's wearing this rad blue science fiction military suit with, like, silver highlights and red piping and this red question mark shoulder patch, which I don't think I've ever seen Who wear before. But they totally showed us a perfect logo for them, especially given the Doctor Who roots.
1: Now, here's the question. Do you think that's actually her official uniform at the time, or do you think it's just a really snazzy outfit, either that she was incidentally wearing when she got called in or that she put together specifically for briefing Excalibur? because Excalibur doesn't operate under who auspices. Excalibur is technically an entirely independent organization, so she's technically just there to consult, tell them what's going on.
0: I think, given what we know about Alisanne Stewart, namely that she has very little sense of humor and about as little sense of imagination, uh, probably this is official. I don't think she really would create a costume for a specific purpose. Additional possibility. Lost a bet with Alistair. Okay, that actually is probably the most likely, because if Alistair has two things in abundance, it's humor and imagination, probably in place of common sense.
1: He definitely doesn't have any common sense. So Alicent is here to tell Excalibur about an emerging situation involving the mad scientist Dr. Jonathan Kerr and an android who are currently rampaging around Scotland. Now, this isn't just any android. This android is the Airwalker, a former Herald of Galactus and sneaker spokesperson. <laughs> <laughs> Airwalker had shown up a few times before. He'd, he'd fought Thor, and after he'd been apparently destroyed, apa- what we learn here is that care scooped up Airwalker's debris, and Airwalker has since regenerated himself. Now, Cares' deal, aside from apparently um, housing, you know, wayward androids, is that he has been attempting to apply Airwalker's regenerative tech to human physiology, and now every person care touches turns into protoplasmic goo.
0: So at this point, we're on like page three, and we already have way more plot than most comics would have. Like seriously, there seem to be so many different plot elements just sort of squished together. But wait, there's more. Care also, for some fucking reason, has
1: an LMD pal named N- Norm, and Norm, for some fucking reason, has a nuclear warhead.
0: If if I were Norm and I had a nuclear warhead, I would call it a nuclear Normhead. But I'm not Norm, so I guess he doesn't. You are correct that he does not.
1: And also, care has got a secret lab full of all sorts of other bad stuff, which this sort of works out nicely in terms of the members of Excalibur. Now... Excalibur figures they'll split in two, and uh, Brigadier Stewart says, "Well, look, I'm technically not your boss, but if I were, here's the precise strategy I would tell you to use." But obviously, I'm not, so you do you. And they all say, "Well, actually, you know, you um, that's a much better plan than we had, so let's just go with that one." Also, we've already hired all
0: these different art teams, so. This makes this story feel very much like a Marvel Comics Presents story. For whatever reason, in Marvel Comics Presents, maybe it's just because they're inherently episodic. You know, they were split up one chapter at a time for every issue of MCP. Um... A lot of those stories had one focus, had each chapter focus on one character. That's what we see here. It reminds me a lot of the previous Excalibur Marvel Comics Presents story, Having a Wild Weekend. That was a weird Looney Tunes one. And also the Starjammers Falcon Quest miniseries, which it seems was probably adapted from a Marvel Comics Presents story. So maybe that's where this issue got its start. Maybe that's where XX Crossing that we're going to be covering next also got its start. I have no idea, and um, these aren't exactly classics, so I couldn't really find a lot of information on their origins.
1: So one of the things that kind of bugged me in this is how disconnected the chapters are. Like, I wanted there to be some kind of contiguity between them, and there really just wasn't. They're all just little standalone stories, despite the fact that they're nominally all happening at the same time and overlapping. But the first one that we see, the first stage of this platformer, is Nightcrawler's, and Nightcrawler is off to fight norm the lmd with an atomic warhead and in doing so he will be penciled by by brian stelfreeze inked by carl story colored by dana morsehead and lettered by michael heisler
0: Gotta say, stealth freeze and story do art I really, really enjoy. It reminds me a lot of, I guess, what I think of as the Vertigo house style. Everything is shadowy with flat colors that are done really well, and usually heavy inks on the outside of figures and thinner, more detailed inks on the inside. It really works, especially for a character like Nightcrawler who's so shadow-based to, be- to begin with.
1: I enjoy also how nebbishly irritated Norm is. Part of the gag of LMDs is that they can look like anyone, and so, as often as not, they just sort of look like the most generic, regular folks possible.
0: LMD, of course, refers to Life Model Decoy, which, if you watch Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., as I understand it, you will have seen, or if you've read basically any story involving Dr. Doom. No, those are Doombots, not LMDs. I thought he had LMDs also.
1: He's got everything, but usually the things replacing him are Doombots.
0: Okay, well, that's reasonable. Anyway, that's what they are, and that's what Norm is with his nuclear norm head.
1: Norm the LMD and his his nuclear warhead, which I refuse to call a nuclear norm head, are hanging out exactly where you take your nuclear warhead when you want to take it out for a day on the town, which is a shopping mall. Unfortunately for Nightcrawler, any of his attempts at subtlety are foiled because, remember, Excalibur is famous and beloved in the UK, so he shows up and is promptly recognized and beset by enthusiastic fans. And Norm is aware of the hubbub, realizes that Nightcrawler is probably there to stop him, and attempts to shoot him with a big fancy laser gun.
0: Now, Nightcrawler is pretty good at fighting lots of folks, robots included, so pretty soon that gun is no more. And, like, also part of Norm's face is no more, and he looks kind of like Cable did when he got revealed to be the Terminator.
1: Because, again, 1991, having a half-cyborg face is the in-thing these days.
0: Do you remember back in 1991 when I, like, I had that sort of undercut surfer cut thing and also half my face was ripped off and it was metal underneath? I didn't know you in 1991. Oh, good point. Well, uh, that's what I looked like.
1: Anyway. Norm triggers the warhead, and Nightcrawler short-circuits Norm before he can reach Chain Reaction by teleporting him into the mall Fountain. And the thing is, you know, my notes on this are so short, but not very much happens. Like, every chapter is roughly going to be a repeat of this. A member of Excalibur goes to, you know, do their designated task or fight their
0: designated fight. There's a slight complication. They triumph. And it is our duty, nonetheless, to discuss each one. Some of them are pretty great, though.
1: But that's, that's sort of part of why I go back to the description of it as a platformer. Like, there are variations on roughly the same theme. And all of them feel like they should lead to a collective final boss, but don't.
0: It's true. They just lead to a conclusion, which was drawn by the same people that drew the intro.
1: Excalibur's just sitting there in the lighthouse doing being like, well, what the hell are we going to do with this leaf shield now?
0: <laughs> well, in chapter three, Shadowcat is going to destroy the. I think it's a backup android for like maybe Doctor Care's first attempt to make the new Airwalker. It seems like he he took a humanoid body and then just sort of
1: plunked a xenomorph-looking head, complete with like gums and saliva and big teeth, but otherwise robotic onto it. Uh, this chapter is is uh, penciled by Dwayne Turner inked by Klaus Janssen, um, colored by Ariane, and again, Heisler's on letters. So Kitty's job is to break into Dr. Kerr's secret underground laboratory to, to fry his prototype android and decipher his research. She utterly fails at the second one. And unfortunately, the prototype android not only regenerates, but is capable of duplicating her powers. Fortunately for the world, Excalibur, Plucky Teenage Kitty, etc., she's able to take him out by tricking him into falling into one of Scotland's many underground lava pits.
0: I mean, I just wish they'd taken it all the way, and she had to hit, like, sort of an axe at the end of the bridge, and then the bridge fell out one little bit at a time, and then he hovered in the air for a second fell into the lava. But, so, yeah, you're right. This is exactly a xenomorph from the Alien franchise. Like, we've seen Kitty go up against the Nagari demon in that one Christmas story that was clearly based on Alien. We've seen the X-Men go up against the Brood multiple times, and those are clearly based on alien Z. And this time, they're just not even trying to make it subtle. It's like, hey, here's an alien. You remember that movie Alien? Here's one of them. But Roboty. Kind of. But
1: Roboty. Which brings us to chapter four, Megan versus Eric the Cyborg, um, which conflict is drawn by Jackson Geis, inked by Tom Palmer, colored by Dana Morsehead, and again, Heisler on letters. Now, you thought... That Kitty was the one breaking into the lab, but it turns out that was just Care's underground lab. He's got another lab too, and um, Megan is off to blow that up. And to do so, it, it's Megan's job specifically because she can shapeshift. And uh, who has told her that that she should be a snake lady for this? That she should she should replicate you know python physiology to some extent, which mostly just seems to make her scaly. Because, and I quote. <clears throat> A reptile's venom-generating physiology should act as a deterrent to any biology-altering particles still active in the lab.
0: Well, that's just basic science. I mean, any scientistian could tell you that after their first year at science school.
1: How do you even snake?
0: <laughs> that is how you snake.
1: No! 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 Uh, well, we know how to snake. You snake 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 But Good point. Yes. But that's not how Megan snacks. Um... Megan mostly just gets scaly, and she is, is all snaked up and ready to blow up the lab, but there's someone else there too, and that is a cyborg named Eric Savin. Let's talk about this dude. Mostly, let's talk about the fact that his code name is
0: <clears throat> Coldblood7. I love that. I love that Seven is part of—that implies that there were six previous Coldbloods. Okay, so I don't know much about this guy. I do know that he was from a story from Marvel Comics Presents that was recent at the time. He's basically RoboCop. He was he was a good guy, he was somehow involved in the military. He was
1: put in charge of something that turned out to basically not exist. He was and then was investigating some kind of secret program. They killed him. Um, his his ally and friend, you know, souped him up, put him in some robot parts. He started to get his memory back. These days, he's
0: a mercenary. He's not a very good one. He was also the inspiration for one of the really generic main henchmen from Iron Man 3. But I want to go back to Robocop for a sec. Now, I've never actually seen Robocop, which no, I know whoa, I should Ro- remedy.
1: Wait, could you repeat that?
0: Because I think I must
1: have misheard you because I thought you said that you'd never seen Robocop.
0: I, I haven't. I've only seen the Weird Fan remake, where they do each scene of it in a different style. There was an interpretive dance one.
1: Okay, you're talking about our Robocop remake, remake which is goddamn amazing, and actually technically an acceptable substitute. So yes. you're okay for now. I think you'd really enjoy the original. But honestly, there's nothing in there that, that beats that interpretive dance number.
0: Okay, well, I'm almost done with The Prisoner. I'll watch it after The Prisoner.
1: It is much shorter than the entirety of The Prisoner, so you've got that going for you. But yeah, it's it's a classic. It's it's something, It's I think... As as someone who has been perpetually behind on pop, pop culture, I will say that RoboCop is sufficiently ubiquitous that it's worth being familiar with just because there are so many references to it everywhere all the time.
0: Totally. That's why I read Harry Potter. And Harry Potter also turned out to be really fun. But the reason I bring up RoboCop, so you know how, like, there are those knockoff toys that you find and they'll have, like, uh... Yes! Robert Cop! Yes! There was a RoboCop action figure labeled as Robert Cop! Half Robert half man all cop <laughs> exactly although that's not as good as my very favorite misnamed cheap generic knockoff action figure um that is complete with the exact same fonts and everything a superman action figure named special man no i think robert cop is still funnier maybe they should team up special man and robert cop i would read that or watch that or whatever i just i like to think that special man just comes with a participation trophy I think he does. He has like a w- one of those white ribbons. Is that the runner-up thing, the consolation prize? I think it really depends
1: on the competition, but um, yeah, that and like a a you know, well, I'm okay, you're okay book
0: and stuff. Totally into this. Anyway, Ro- Robert Cop and Special Man very much aside, uh, yes, Cold Blood Seven, Eric Savin is here as a mercenary, and specifically, ubiquitous evil corporation,
1: Roxxon has hired. Eric or a Cold Blood Seven, <clears throat> sorry, <laughs> Cold Blood Seven, to retrieve uh, Doctor Care's notes. Now Megan manages to talk him out of this. He resists, but uh, she, her, her logic and her general goodness win him over, and he helps her blow up the lab, which is about par for how his mercenary gigs tend to go. Uh, he is not a very good mercenary. He is, he is, he is generally really easy to talk into doing the right thing.
0: I mean, as I understand it, he was basically just Deathlock, but Marvel couldn't use Deathlock for some reason, so they made another one and gave him another name, so...
1: Which is funny, because he and Deathlock have teamed up before.
0: Well, that's awesome. They have so much in common. Like, you know, almost everything.
1: Aww. Now, you know who doesn't really have that much in common? Hmm. They've taken down both his labs which means it's time for Phoenix to fight the one and only actual Dr. Jonathan Kerr. This chapter is drawn by Rick Leonardi, inked by Joe Rubenstein, colored by Glynnis Oliver, and as always, penciled by Michael Heisler. Now, Dr. Kerr chooses to hide out in the back of a pub, and after Phoenix finally intimidates the recalcitrant patrons of that pub into turning him over using highly pressurized uh, barrels of beer, uh, he Reveals himself, and he's all weird and lumpy now. Good job, Dr. Care. You
0: mad science stood up. I mean, he kind of did, because he's also unkillable at this point. Like, he can die, but then he's just immediately resurrected by the, you know, sciency stuff he got from the Herald of Galactus robot that he found.
1: There's another problem, too, that, that results from his powers coming from a Herald of Galactus. Because they're based on Galactus's paracosmic powers they can eat through Phoenix's force field.
0: That, I mean, I'm gonna go ahead and say that actually is some pretty plausible comic book science right there.
1: It's also a really big problem, because remember, this is the guy who can turn people into protoplasmic goo by just touching them. Now, Phoenix briefly flirts with the idea of killing him, or Rachel briefly flirts with the idea of firing up the Phoenix Force to the max, basically scattering his molecules across the universe. But she comes up with a different solution instead. She encloses him in sealed glass, where he will repeatedly suffocate and resurrect ad infinitum, while Weird Happening's organization figures out what to do with him. Which, as merciful options go, seems
0: maybe not actually all that merciful. Yeah, I mean, I think her hope is that eventually they can rehabilitate him, but I don't know if who's very good at that sort of thing. That being said, well— and they're also torturing him infinitely until then. I mean, he did murder a whole lot of people. I'm, I you know I know an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. And
1: also there are laws against cruel and unusual punishment and international treaties banning this kind of nonsense. And also it's just, it's yeah, it's uncool. Like, yeah, he did really terrible stuff, but this is not how the system is supposed
0: to work. Well, it's how the Phoenix Force works, apparently. How the Phoenix Force doesn't work is in the fight between Captain Britain and Airwalker, because that is Brian's job. He's good at punching things, and there sure is a nigh omnipotent android to punch. And those punches
1: will be penciled and inked by Eric Larson, colored by Glynis Oliver, lettered by Michael Heisler. But first, I want to talk about Airwalker a little bit, who, in addition to being, again, um, a, a ubiquitous speaker spokes robot, not really. But th- its name is Airwalker. Come on. Anyway, um, so Airwalker was originally a Xanadarian named Gabriel Lamb. who's a captain. He captained a vessel in the Nova Corps. And Galactus recruited Lamb as his herald, basically saying, you want to see the universe and talk to someone who's been everywhere? And Lamb was like, hell yeah, let's go eat some planets. No, he was, he was really into the, the discovery and exploration aspect of the job. And he and Galactus actually got to be pretty good friends, like to the point where Lamb actually sacrificed his life to save Galactus in a fight. So afterwards, Galactus put Lamb's consciousness in a perfect robotic replica, but it turned out the robot version wasn't nearly as fun, so Galactus immediately retired him to Earth, where, after briefly being mistaken for the
0: Archangel Gabriel, Airwalker
1: got himself killed and resurrected a few times over the years, bringing
0: us to here. I guess that kinda makes sense. I mean, uh, this dude had like a horn to summon Galactus, and Gabriel yeah. also has a
1: horn. Well, and his and his name is Gabriel. They do they do have the same name. And they both have fiery wings. That's true. I don't recall the biblical Gabriel being a giant robot, but I also um will admit I'm I'm not that religious, so yeah.
0: I'm pretty sure he was.
1: Anyway, having effectively, you know, just Equipped the bubble lead, uh, Captain Britain makes short work of Airwalker. No, no, sorry. I'm just <laughs> um, Captain Britain actually can't make much headway at all because Airwalker maintains a barrier of pollutants and inert gases. And given that this is Earth in the early 90s, he's got a lot to work from. However, and this is sort of an aside, but it's, it's a detail that I really liked, Airwalker apparently pretty much failed Telekinesis 101 because at first he only thinks to extend the barrier in front of him, so Captain Britain is able to get in one good hit from behind before Airwalker catches on. Unfortunately, that only works once. Airwalker regenerates, and he is now almost fully repowered, which means that he's got his fiery wings. Uh, they are what Airwalker himself calls a fire cloak, and these collect cosmic energy. So he and Captain Britain are grappling, and Captain Britain is losing badly, basically getting crushed to death. And Captain Britain decides to do what any sensibly desperate individual does and cross the streams. He grabs Airwalker's wings, the the flame coming out of them, and crosses them, uh, creating a universe-destroying explosion. Wait, what? Okay, so this may sound like a bad tactic, but as Captain Britain reassures us, he figured, accurately, that the explosion would take place on a quote-unquote com- cosmic level, leaving the minutia, the regular world, untouched.
0: Oh, I mean, okay, on the one hand, that makes no goddamn sense. On the other hand, I am an aficionado of comic book science nonsense, and this is comic book science nonsense of the highest form. It, it aims high, and it executes.
1: To their credit, all of the other members of Excalibur make fun of him for this and are horrified later, but... I really want to see the repercussions of this action explored. Like, I want to see the series wherein the multiverse is functionally destroyed because of what Captain Britain set off in this stupid little fight.
0: Yeah, it's never really referenced again. Nobody references anything about this special edition, but that does seem like a big deal. I mean, if cosmic means what I think it means, yeah, that's a whole thing. I mean, also, isn't the Earth technically part of the cosmos? Uh, I guess not, apparently.
1: Huh. Now that brings us to chapter seven. This is this is the bonus stage, the one you can only get if you manage to go through the technically illusory wall in the lighthouse, and you've got all of the items equipped in the right order, and you're playing Kitty Pride at the time. And that gives you access to the Lockheed level, in which Lockheed fights who. Uh, this is penciled by James Fry, inked by Don Hudson, colored by Ariane, and lettered by Michael Heisler, and while Excalibur was out running around saving the world, a couple of Who grunts decided it would be a great idea to break into the lighthouse to plant bugs so that they could catch Excalibur at whatever they are inevitably up to. Being very silly, mostly. I mean, yeah, I feel like Excalibur's home life is mostly just sort of goofy. But Lockheed has has been left to guard the lighthouse, which means that he gets to do what Lockheed does under these circumstances, which is basically reenact Home Alone.
0: I mean, he totally does, right down to the fact that the two Weird Happenings organization agents that show up are basically Harry and Marv. Like, they look almost exactly like those characters. Are they wet or sticky? Uh, not in this case. Mainly, they're very scared.
1: Appropriately so, as, as one becomes when one is bitten by a dragon one can't see and then chased by a flaming, empty Captain Britain costume, which is what happens. So, um, Lockheed chases away the would would-be spies, and... We haven't talked a ton about the art here, but I, I think it's worth giving, giving um, Fry and Hudson a nod
0: because they do mischievous-faced Lockheed very well. They do. But I have a question here. So, like you said, Lockheed chases them away with a flaming Captain Britain costume. But we've already seen that Captain Britain costumes, you can't just buy them at the store. You can't just pick them up along with bread and milk. It was a really big deal when Brian got the Captain Marshall costume that he's been wearing for all of these years. And then there's just, like, another one here? What the hell? I'm just going to go with Occam's razor here and say... What makes you think it's a real one? So this is just like his practice costume? Oh, or maybe it's like a sex thing and he has Megan dress or, up? Or,
1: or TechNet left it and just happened to have one because it's the kind of weird thing they have. Or they just found it in one of the closets because the lighthouse does stuff like that. I feel like I I don't think there's ever anything I'm going to be shocked to discover was was lying around the lighthouse. Like anything at all.
0: That's probably true, especially with all those cross-time intrusions we were talking about in our last Excalibur story episode.
1: Yeah, this is far from the weirdest thing that has just popped up there.
0: Very, very true. Well, anyway, we've now focused on all of our main characters, our various missions, even the bonus one that they had to unlock with Lockheed, have all been accomplished, so...
1: So we get to an epilogue, which is also really easy to picture with, like, 16-bit character graphics and awkward word balloons, um, in which everyone gives Brian some shit about destroying the universe on a cosmic level, and they all
0: have a good laugh. The end. And then the cosmos unravels entirely, presumably. it's a special edition. But the cosmos has rebuilt itself in time for the next and final Excalibur special edition, that being XX Crossing, which uses the exact same formula. Yeah,
1: so you've got, again, Lobdell writing and pencils, inkers, and colors divided by chapter as an parent. apparent. Um, and again, each chapter focused on one member of Excalibur. Somehow, though, and I give it a lot of credit for this, XX Crossing has a much
0: sillier premise. And it's so much fun- fun. Also, the premise feels a lot more cohesive. Formulaic, yes, but cohesive. So continuity-wise, this issue takes place roughly between Excalibur 54 and 55, as I understand it. But you don't really need to know any of the stuff we haven't talked about that happened in 51 through 54. It's still basically the same team. Rachel's still out of it.
1: Yeah. Um, Excalibur is a superhero team. The, oh, what you do need to know, actually, the only thing you need to know is that they have, they have been a bit at odds with Dr. Doom in their past. That is, I think, the only relevant bit of backstory here.
0: Yeah, although that one we covered way back in the day with the Prometheum Exchange, which was a lot of fun.
1: And I gotta say, looking looking at the front, it, it opens with a cover gag that we've seen before almost exactly.
0: Right, because we see Excalibur tangling with the original five X-Men, complete with their black and yellow costumes from the 60s, and it's a whole lot like Excalibur tangling with the 90s X-Men, and the one issue where it turned out the 90s X-Men were actually werewolves.
1: Don't do that, artists. Don't do covers that alan davis has already done on the same title like don't you you no one is capable of coming out of that looking better
0: that said excalibur in a big tangle with a bunch of people they should actually be friends with that they're fighting i mean that's a pretty excalibur thing right there oh unquestionably
1: or actually i'll say if you're gonna do it find some way to lampshade it and draw attention to it yeah throw on throw on a davis style word balloon or two
0: that would be pretty wonderful. I am a firm believer that most covers could be improved by word balloons. But in chapter one, which is the intro drawn by Steve Lytle and Jimmy Palmiotti, we see in front of a montage of the stuff that's going to happen in the comic, which I actually kind of like as a tease, a new villain, a character named Sidestep. He is a guy with the power to move people and things back and forth through time, and also to do a lot of other sort of ill-defined things that he'll just sort of say he can do over the course of the story.
1: And he is currently in the middle of a fairly high-pressure job interview.
0: Because he is talking to a silent and mechanically frowning Dr. Doom in Latveria. Apparently, Dr. Doom has been looking for a new freelance assassin, and so Sidestep is using this as his cover letter. I don't think it's an interview, really, because Doom is silent. I don't know. I mean, I haven't had very many job interviews. I've been at my current job for, like, 11 years.
1: Well, job interviews are weird, man. And there are, are, you know, he might just be at the part of the job interview where Doom has said, okay, you know, now that you've talked a bit about, now I've reviewed your resume, tell me a bit about yourself and your qualifications.
0: Maybe. And the way he tells Doom about his qualifications is to tell Doom about his plan.
1: Can you imagine, though, trying to job interview with Dr. Doom? Like, how intimidating that would be? He's also just really weird. like, you may have read all of those, how, how to interview well. You may have practiced your power poses. You may have, you know, your beautifully formatted res- resume, but like, you know, somewhere in the middle of there, it's just going to be like, good night. Ding, <laughs> ding, 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 ding.
0: Nice. Well, anyway... Sidestep, in this portion of the interview, application, whatever process, tells Doom about a nice idea he has, which is that he figures Doom's probably pretty pissed at Excalibur, right? Because of the Prometheum Exchange storyline from Excalibur number 37 through 39. I mean, Excalibur cost Doom the realm of limbo, you know? Silly Sidestep. Doom is pissed at everyone. It's true. But Sidestep has chosen to use Excalibur as his demo victims, because this is, after all, an Excalibur comic. So he's going to pluck them from time, along with the original five X-Men and Professor Xavier from the Silver Age era and when they were all young or younger, and have each member of Excalibur fight one of the X-Men one-on-one, and that's how he's going to kill Excalibur. Sidestep explains his logic.
1: Now, if we want Excalibur dead, the neatest thing I can think of is for me to temporarily rearrange the original X-Men's thought patterns. Wherever they land across the time continuum, the younger, more inexperienced heroes will have the home court advantage over their confused and displaced prey.
0: Now, I'm not gonna speak to whether this plan is a good idea or not, although I think everyone's gonna have the same opinion, right. But I will say, this is impressively unnecessarily complex. I mean, we're doing time travel and brainwashing just to kill some people that Dr. Doom is pissed at. That's pretty good supervillain stuff there.
1: Also, he could just drop them in Westchester in the 60s, and the original XN would still
0: have home court advantage. But that wouldn't be nearly as entertaining. And I think part of the point here is that sidestep is showcasing to Doom the range of his powers, which are pretty much omnipotence from what I can tell. Yeah, yeah. He can he can you know
1: reset people in time, he can rewrite their minds, he can do a lot of peripheral stuff that's never really developed. In his own words, pretty cool, no?
0: Right. And I love that panel where he says, pretty cool, no? Because it just is a focus on Doom's face, and Doom is just scowling through his mask, not saying anything. Doom
1: does not think you're cool, Sidestep.
0: Doom doesn't think anybody is cool, except for Doom.
1: Sidestep is at least Natalie attired. I will give him that.
0: Yeah, he's got this sort of white tuxedo thing going on. Anyway, so this is what's going to happen. Sidestep uses his powers, and Lytle and Palmiati have this great drawing of the various characters being turned into, like, neon silhouettes being pulled through the time stream. It's all garish and, like, gaseous, but still recognizable who's who. And that brings us to the same damn formula as an era parent because we're going to do character by character. And the first one is Captain Britain, drawn by Ron Lim with Al Gordon, uh, in an era that kind of surprised me. Yeah, so we start with Captain Britain whacked in the face with a cannonball. Not cannonball capital C. The, the, the object. Lowercase c, and that cannonball is propelled by an optic blast, which seems a little bit like overkill, but, you know, more is more. Whatever. And he falls near Major Scott Summers of the Colonial Army, who's wearing a black and yellow Revolutionary uniform. That's right, it is 1776 in America. Cyclops is a member of this army, and he just hit Captain Britain in the face.
1: Fun fact, literally no one in any time period ever has dressed like that
0: on purpose. I feel like this is the Revolutionary Era equivalent of that plaid suit.
1: No, this is so much worse than the Revolutionary Era equivalent of that plaid suit. This is like pajamas from the mid-90s with the belt. This is like the costume that you put together for, like, fourth grade history project out of, like, your parents' pajamas and a belt. Well, clearly
0: that didn't happen. Cyclops lost his parents ages ago.
1: Maybe that's why it's such a bad costume.
0: Yeah, maybe, maybe. Uh, This is actually the second time we've seen Scott Summers in a sort of colonial revolutionary era. He was also that ship's captain looking dude in the Dark Phoenix Saga, in that weird imaginary thing that Mastermind created. But anyway, Cyclops is still very much Cyclops, as he explains to Captain Britain.
1: While I am reluctant to engage you in fisticuffs, I will do that and far more if you refuse to reveal the location of the Royal Army's midnight
0: strike. And there's a big misunderstanding-based fight, which, I mean, fair enough. In this case, the hero-versus-hero fight is because one of the heroes is literally brainwashed. And it goes, I mean, I'm not gonna say all that well for anybody. Cyclops at one point thinks he's killed Captain Britain and is very relieved when it turns out he hasn't. What a relief that you still live. While it was
1: my intent to incapacitate you, I live in constant fear I lack the proper control over my eye cannon.
0: So here we find out that while sidestep can sort of mess with people's personalities, the core remains intact. That's right, Scott is still complaining about the terrible burden of his optic blasts.
1: What I want to know is where he found you know the ruby quartz glasses in the in 1776. But that's beside the point because yeah, you know, there's some nonsense. Cyclops knocks a tree over on Captain Britain, and Captain Britain thunks him over the head and knocks him
0: out. Right, as Captain Britain tries to figure out what's going on. Is this another cross-time caper? Is it maybe Mastermind? Is it maybe Despair? I love that Excalibur fought Despair in that one little fill-in, and they keep referencing it. That's actually something I genuinely appreciate. But Captain Britain wins, and so Sidestep says, aw, crap, and pulls Captain Britain and Cyclops into stasis to figure out what to do with later. Which brings us to the next fight. Oh, oh, so if, if Aeroparent is a platformer, I think this
1: is a fighting game.
0: I think it kind of is, yeah, with a pretty good story mode. That brings us to Chapter 3, which is about Megan, and drawn by Dwayne Turner and Joe Rubenstein. Props very much, especially to Rubenstein the inker. The clean uh, inks with the thick outer lines and more subtle inner lines, kind of like that uh, earlier one with Nightcrawler in the last issue, actually. Plus the Mignola-esque use of black shadows is super rad, especially for this era, which is Megan somewhere, I'm not sure where, during World War II, where she runs into... Possibly my favorite version of Angel that I have ever seen, and I say this as a gigantic Archangel fan. In this case, it's '60s Angel, so you know when he was still very, very pretty. But he's in a bomber jacket, complete with like the sexy lady on the back, like airplanes used to have drawn on them, fighter planes. And he's just, well, and he's got he's got kills marks, too on on what would be his fuselage. It's great, and he's got these shoulder mounted machine guns and like these big goggles. He looks so fucking cool. He's also got a plus Cliff Secord hair, like. Angel is a character that's hard to get right, I think, because, you know, pre-Archangel Angel is often very boring. Post-Archangel Angel is often just so broody that there's nothing interesting. But going for this, like this hot shot, sort of arrogant, good-natured but self-obsessed beautiful teenager is a perfect way to do Warren Worthington.
1: I'm less distracted by this destructive cacophony than by the sight of a floating woman who is nearly as beautiful as I. I must insist to you and your Nazi cohorts... I am the Avenging Angel.
0: You know who he is. He's Jack Harkness. He kind of is Jack Harkness, yeah. God, actually, that works surprisingly well. Jack Harkness with wings. That's a concerning thought. But yeah, I mean, I I could just read stuff about this version of Angel all the time. And Megan's having a good time with it as well. She realizes, okay, this is a kid I know, but clearly he's not in his right mind. So what can I do to sort of gently take him out? And she decides that a teenage boy this pretty, who's obsessed with pretty girls, what he's gonna freak out when he sees is her bat form, where she's got those sort of bat ears and she's all brown and furry, and he does indeed freak out, she slashes his guns off of him, she just sort of cuts the straps with her sharp, werewolfy fingernails, and then runs away from him and tricks him into kablanging into a clock tower. Very nice, Megan.
1: Okay, also, Angel flying straight into things is never not funny. It's like Kitty assuming she's going to be able to phase through a wall and just sort of hitting
0: it. I feel like Warren Worthington, his biggest nemesis is probably Apocalypse, but his second biggest might just be sliding glass doors. Ooh, third, because you forgot shirts. Ooh, right, shirts. Well, usually triumphs over them. But they keep coming back. Oh, damn it, shirts. God damn it. Anyway, that takes us to chapter four, one of my very favorites, which, which focuses on Kylan, because, like I said, this takes place after Excalibur Fifty, so Kylan is one of the members of Excalibur. This is drawn by Joe Herrera and inked by Sean McManus, and uh, Joe Mad's style, I think, it really works. Like he does warrior types and sort of big, beefy, badass-looking people super well. Yeah, if you had to describe his
1: artwork in a word, I'd probably go with boisterous, which fits this. the tremendously.
0: Right, because what Joe Madureira also draws very well is honkers. That's right. We are in prehistory, the dawn of time, where honkers roamed the earth. And I do want to have a brief sidebar here to say, if you're wondering if we're ever going to say the word dinosaur again, no, no, we're not. They're called honkers, now and forever.
1: Uh, for those of you who missed it, we we first covered this, this change in terminology in episode 197, when we talked about Wolverine the Jungle Adventure, which introduced us to new nomenclature for, for these
0: terrible and marvelous lizards. Now, as for why Kylan has been sent back to the time of the Honkers and not some other era, well, Sidestep has an explanation. Maybe it's the Dew, the broad chest. He just looks so primeval. I like Honkers, but if I were Sidestep, I probably would have shunted Kylan to like the Hyborian Age. You know, that whole thing with Kulan Goth when he took over New York that one time and turned it to the Hyborian Age then? That would have been a great place for a barbarian like Kylan. That's not technically the past, though. Well, right, but the actual Hyborian Age before Kulan Goth redid New York was. The thing that Kulan Goth was referencing.
1: Okay. Oh, I'll buy that.
0: Well, Kylan the Barbarian is not attacked by a honker, yet, but instead he is pelted by snowballs from afar.
1: Silver Age Iceman is so
0: ineffectual. And Kylan takes issue with this. Only a... A-, a fraidy cat would strike from behind. Reveal yourself and you might taste the steel of my blade. Because, yeah, that's Kylan. He's a big badass warrior, but he's also somebody who hasn't been on Earth since he was a small child, and so sometimes he sounds like one.
1: Yes, his sense of Earth vernacular kind of stopped at age six. Now, he's fighting Iceman, but like the other X-Men who've been, been time displaced, Iceman is adapted to this era, and specifically, he is, he is a human pre-spoken language, so all he can do
0: is giggle creepily. And Kylan uses that to his advantage by perfectly mimicking, using his mutant powers, Iceman's creepy giggle. And then they fight some, but they're suddenly attacked. By, you guessed it, a honker of doom! Not apparently a robotic honker of doom like the honker of doom we saw in The Jungle Adventure. This
1: appears to be a legitimate honker of doom, at least as they were imagined in 1993. So this is a a lizard honker of doom, not like the the more modern um, disco chicken of death honker of doom.
0: Exactly. So, Prehistoric Iceman and Kylan team up, and it's awesome, and they fight the Honker of Doom, and then they shake hands. And that's how Kylan triumphs over his opponent. He fights a Honker of Doom with him, and then makes friends.
1: I have concerns about this entire premise. Specifically, they're in a frozen wasteland
0: from the start. This Honker of Doom, as it is drawn, is presumably
1: cold-blooded.
0: Yeah, I figure it's, you know, right as the dinosaurs were dying off. This honker of doom is so of doom that it was able to survive far into the destruction of its entire uh, class? Kingdom? Species? Kings play cards on fat green stools? I don't remember how that works.
1: Uh, Maybe it was
0: warmed by spite. Anyway, that brings us to the next adventure. God, there are a lot of these. There are, especially when we do Air Apparent and XX Crossing back-to-back. But nonetheless, we soldier on with Nightcrawler, drawn by Jay Lee, at the fall of the Roman Empire in, you know, Rome.
1: And he is facing off against Beast, who is a Roman centurion in this timeline. But fortunately, even in Latin, every bit as talkative and ridiculous as one might hope. Beast says, in Latin, I perceive sarcasm lacing your every syllable. You will see. I certainly regret any vile vexation visited upon the personage of a gladiator Hank.
0: Gladiator Hank. Now, Nightcrawler quickly grabs a spare sword and is also super charming and also speaks Latin because, I don't know, I guess he knows it.
1: Nightcrawler grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, presumably during an era at least where Mass was still in
0: Latin. Well, right, but I thought the whole thing with Mass being in Latin is that they had to change it to be colloquial so that more people could understand it.
1: Yeah, but presumably some people got really into the idea
0: of learning Latin. Well, Kurt did end up the Pope that one time. Anyway, he joins right in. He did not actually end up the Pope. They were going to make him the Pope. He didn't actually get there. He was just a fake priest. It was ridiculous regardless. But Kurt says, as the legendary Errol Flynn might say, have at the base villain, because Nightcrawler is awesome.
1: And because Nightcrawler understands that there are parts of Errol Flynn's actions that are fun to you know, replicate, and parts that you don't touch.
0: Yeah, Errol Flynn was not not a good person at all.
1: Errol Flynn was very definitely a rapist. So, so going on, Nightcrawler realizes that his uh, verbose opponent is in fact a beast and just knocks him out. You know, I'm not sure why Sidestep thought it would be a good idea to use the original X-Men, because they're teenagers. They're not very experienced, especially compared to Excalibur, who've been at this for years and years and years.
0: I think Sidestep just realized it would make the book sell better. God, this raises so many more questions. He's very powerful. That takes us to what's probably my favorite chapter artistically. This is the one about Shadowcat at the fall of King Arthur, which took place in actual British history. This is drawn by Malcolm Jones and his style is so good. He's got this like super sketchy, shaded, very dramatic style. It's like a horror-ish take on Larry Stroman's work and I could look at this shit all fucking day. He inked a bunch of Sandman and I think that's why his work initially looked familiar to me, but it's that same kind of just lush, fantastical, a little bit off feel.
1: Also, the other the other premise that I have trouble with with sidestep is the idea that pulling Excalibur out of their time and universe and throwing them in the middle in the middle of a bunch of weird constitutes pulling them out of their depth. Like this is literally this is this is Tuesday.
0: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, Excalibur's whole deal is that they get shunted through time and space. You know, before they have their morning coffee. They're so qualified for this. And fight alternate versions of everyone they know. Right. And this is not the first time, or even the third. So. King Arthur, who, as I mentioned, is at his fall, he's stabbed full of swords, and in his dying breath, he throws the sword Excalibur, as opposed to the team Excalibur, or the comic Excalibur, into a nearby lake so that the Lady of the Lake can take it.
1: Oh, it would be so funny if you just threw the comic in,
0: though. Right? Oh, and then then it would be all wet in your hands? But someone uses a telekinetic pull to grab the sword directly out of the Lady of the Lake's reaching hand. Shadowcat knows that based on actual English history, this isn't how it went. She's gotta fix time. It turns out the telekinetic person in question is, unsurprisingly, Jean Grey as Marvel Le Fay, which makes me so happy, and her character design is rad as shit. She's all armored and covered in scarves and has wild hair and tattered cape, and Jones makes her look like the scariest badass witch ever, and she's awesome.
1: So Kitty uses her knowledge of physics to mess with Jean's telekinesis, knocks her out as well, summarily.
0: You might be noticing a pattern here, like in everything we've covered in this entire episode so far. But that takes us to chapter seven, which is about Cerise drawn by Rick Leonardi and Al Williamson. And Cerise awakens in days of future past in Earth 811. She's the leader of the mutant underground apparently. That's not how Gifted went either. But I do enjoy this. I mean, that's also not how Days in Future Past went, so... Right, so that's double confusing and uh, surprising. But I do like this, that we have this character who's totally unfamiliar with X-Men history, except for the legends that she's heard, like, thrown into one of the most significant portions of it.
1: And that she's the only one of them who's dropped into an actual piece of X-Men continuity. Everyone else is just shoved into um, dubious history. Now... She is also going to be the one facing against probably the most formidable of their foes, and that is Charles Xavier himself.
0: Right. But before we get to that, I want to talk about some of the visuals here, because, you know, it's a future past. Everybody's all scrawny and haggard, and they look like they haven't had a good sandwich in a long time, and they also are wearing these shabby green jumpsuits. And here's Cerise, who's like six and a half feet tall, super muscular, wearing fuchsia, and her hair goes out past her shoulders, and I really enjoy that contrast. But, as far as the conflict itself goes, a sentinel attacks, as one would expect. What one would not expect is that it's a sentinel that's basically a mecca, and inside it, piloting it, is Charles Xavier. You know, I would actually totally expect that. Professor Xavier, you are a jerk. Kitty Pride was right. But Cerise is pretty great. She's like, wait, I've heard of you. You're a teacher. This isn't right. Let me educate you. And...
1: She blows up the Sentinel real good, and as Professor X tries to read her mind, he realizes what's going on, that, he, that there has been time travel and they, they have been brainwashed, and apparently is crushed under the weight of a tower
0: of thought balloons because he promptly drops dead. Oh no, it's a time paradox! Fish and mailed! So Sidestep is very concerned, because he meant to get a job with Doom, not to break the entire time stream. He pulls all of the X-Men and all of Excalibur to the present to check out whatever damage might have been done. Which takes us to our final chapter, once again drawn by Steve Lytle and Jimmy Palmiotti, like in chapter one, like what was done in Error Parent. And suddenly, everybody's in the same place at the same time, in front of a still-silent, mostly impassive Dr. Doom. Who's just watching this like, oh, for fuck's sake. (laughs) Right, I feel like that's how Dr. Doom approaches most of the world, when he's not talking about that fool, Richards.
1: Five, four, three, two, no, too late.
0: (laughs) Now, the X-Men, the 60s-ified version of the X-Men that were taken out of time, they remember just having been in the danger room, and all of a sudden they see all these people that they don't recognize standing over what looks like Professor Xavier's corpse. Cyclops is Cyclops.
1: We don't care who you are or why we're here. Step away from
0: the Professor. Now! <laughs> what was that quote from that, uh, connect the dots thing from the State Fair workbook? Whatever you're doing, I'm here to stop you. Now. Scott Summers, ladies and gentlemen. Stand down, Wolverine. <laughs> right? Anyway, there's a big fight because of course there is. Nightcrawler makes the first move by passing the fuck out.
1: First, though, Beast misuses the word elucidating, and I'm really upset about it because Hank McCoy,
0: you know better. Right. Well, the reason Nightcrawler passes out is because apparently Xavier, who is not, in fact, dead, is using Kurt as an astral anchor in this time stream. Once again, let's not think too much about those words. Let's just think about the fact that they sound really cool.
1: And with Kurt as an astral anchor, Xavier is able to break into Sidestep's mind and find out the source of his powers. Sidestep was a NASA researcher who found a Cree vest from space and ran off with it.
0: And that gave him, apparently, all of the powers ever. So, Xavier lets Kurt wake up, and Kurt teleports over to Sidestep and rips his vest out right through his shirt. Ow, that's like pulling somebody's underwear out without taking their pants off first. That's gotta sting like hell.
1: I mean, it depends on what the vest is made of, what the shirt's made of, and how it's handled. But anyway, that gets rid of Sidestep's powers and whips them all back home sidestep tries to talk his way out of it, and Doom, who has had quite enough of this job interview, drops him through a a trapdoor. And
0: calls in the next applicant. I guess that'd be me. I'm here about the job. So, the moral of this story, gentle listeners, is don't use a Kree vest to have all of the powers and then do a plan that doesn't make much sense but is really complicated, and also maybe just stay away from Doctor Doom, like, completely.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think if you're going to do those first two things, don't do them in Dr. Doom's throne room.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like, um, you know, if you're a comedian and you're really trying to impress somebody, you try out the uh, the jokes that you've really practiced and refined. You don't just, like, throw new material at them. That's just a bad plan.
1: And you definitely don't throw the original Unstuck in Time X-Men at, back at them because, as we all know, the fastball special was not
0: developed until the Bronze age. It's true. So, there you have it, heir apparent, and XX Crossing, two comics that are really, really, really similar. Which one do we like better, Jay?
1: (sighs) I mean, once I started thinking of Era Parent in Mega Man 2 terms, I developed a lot more affection for it fairly quickly, but I don't know whether that's the comic or the allegory.
0: I mean, I would say probably Allegory. Era Parent is fun, definitely. But for me, XX Crossing just has this sense of, like, silly buoyancy to it. Like, it knows how formulaic it is, and it really plays with that. So, for me, I gotta say XX Crossing. I actually enjoyed that one a ton.
1: Mm, I think, on the whole, I'm actually gonna say, even without the Mega Man stuff, I preferred Era Parent. I think it's got more variation between the chapters. It felt less like reading the same story over and over and over again. There is that, yeah. Yeah, and I think, I think it was it was, a, it was a bit stronger. I think if there had been more to tie it together and a little bit more inter, interplay, it would have been a perfectly solid um, graphic novel. Well,
0: there you have it. Uh, listeners, you be the judge. Assuming you can track down Error Parent, it's kind of hard to find. XX Crossing is easier to find. It's on Marvel Unlimited. So that, I guess, begs another question, which of the Excalibur Special Editions, now that we have covered every single goddamn last one, which one's the best? Okay, so what do we have to work from again? Let's, let's go back over the list. So we have The Sword is Drawn, which started the whole series. We have Mojo Mayhem. We have Weird War 3. We have The Possession. We have Air Apparent. And we have XX Crossing.
1: Okay, I can narrow it down to two immediately. And by the way, I'll link to our coverage of all of those previous ones in the Visual Companion to this episode if you want to go back and hear those. But for me, it's, it's got to be either The Sword is Drawn or Mojo Mayhem.
0: I totally agree. And part of that is, those are the Alan Davis ones. For me, I mean, The Sword is Drawn is certainly more significant continuity-wise, like, it was Excalibur number 0, effectively, but Mojo Mayhem is just constant goddamn delight and makes me smile every time I even think about it. So I'm gonna say Excalibur Mojo Mayhem, best special edition, at least for me.
1: Yeah, I will go with you on that. It also features a Cat's Laughing cameo. It's a lot
0: of fun and it's got a ton of heart. Mm Mm-hmm. Speaking of things that are fun and have a lot of heart, hey, listeners, and you've got questions. Nate asks via email, what's the difference between the technarchy and the phalanx? So short answer, Nate, is the phalanx
1: is what happens when living species get infected with the technarchy's transmode virus. Quick recap, the technarchs feed by infecting living matter with the transmode virus, and then they drain its energy. Now, sometimes this process goes wrong, and that's when the phalanx happens. Infected organisms spread the virus, which they're not supposed to be able to do, and then turn it into kind of a big, weird hive mind and create a big space antenna, which summons the technarchy, which wipes out the contagion. We're going to be looking at these guys in excruciating detail pretty soon, because we are almost to the event Phalanx Covenant, which, as its title would imply, is all about the phalanx.
0: That kind of begs the question, though. In a way, isn't what happened with Limbo sort of a parallel to this? I mean, aren't a lot of the demons who were infected by the Magus when he came to Limbo sort of their own version of the Phalanx? You know, not with a hive mind or not with the tower, but they were creatures that should have been devoured and instead got turned into crazy robot people.
1: Yeah, I mean, I assume that it just works differently in Limbo, that the laws of nature are functionally different, and also that it's essentially a self-contained dimension. So, odd stuff was afoot there. I don't remember whether that's something that the Phalanx Covenant actually brings up or not do you not sure um and i should say also the phalanx is shows up in the 1992 cartoon as well and there it is
0: actually just another word for the technarch that was a weird one warlock does not seem like warlock and like he's looking for his wife and it's very strange
1: yeah sexual dimorphism in the technarchy is is an odd odd thing especially like breasts like why would why would why would a technarch have breasts
0: that's the question of the episode right there
1: God, that's, yeah, that's, that's the thing that bugs me about a lot, of, a lot of creature design and a lot of alien design because there's stuff that we associate with sexual dimorphism in humans, in primates, or, you know, even in mammals, and it just doesn't make sense outside of that context. Like, don't give your sexy lizard lady boobs. What the hell?
0: Right, yeah, I was thinking of D&D 4th Edition where there was a lot of discussion about why female dragonborn had breasts.
1: And maybe don't give your like space robot lady breasts either i sort of i mean that's that's something that's that's a question i don't remember whether we've discussed this but like how warlock interacts with gender is is one of those things that the comic has largely left unexplored but which would be really interesting to see more of because i feel like he just sort of grabbed one that was the default because technarchs really only have one gender right
0: as far as I know, I mean, they did play with it a little. I can think of at least one or two circumstances where Warlock was a super masculine-looking male appearance wearing women's clothing and everyone was snickering at him.
1: Yeah, but that was mostly playing with the, your sense of appropriate attire and gendered clothing isn't correct on Earth that you've, you know, just shown up on. That's an entirely different thing. Hmm, true. Well, anyway, what else do we have? All right, so an anonymous listener asked on Tumblr, what did you think of Avengers Infinity War?
0: So we'll try to keep this spoiler free because it's still a relatively recent movie and um, a lot of stuff happens, let's just say. It
1: does. So I got to say, um, I was really entertained or continue to be really entertained by the fact literally every other movie Doctor Strange appears in is a better Doctor Strange movie
0: than Doctor Strange actually was. I totally agree. He was a ton of fun in Thor Ragnarok. He's really good in this. I think part of it is that he benefits in Infinity War from being directly juxtaposed with Tony Stark because the Doctor Strange movie was basically just magical Iron Man. It was kind of the same character progression. And so seeing them hang out and not get along at all and actually be very different, that worked really well. Doctor Strange should be funny,
1: or Doctor Strange's stories should have an element of humor, whether it's Doctor Strange's own sort of fish-out-of-waterness or the weird stuff around him as it mixes with the actual Marvel Universe. And you've got that in Thor Ragnarok and you've got that here. And that wasn't, the Doctor Strange movie just just fell so flat on that front. I really enjoyed Infinity War. I have one major, 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 major quibble with it. I feel like it fails its female characters just spectacularly badly.
0: Yeah, I mean you don't have that many female characters in the Marvel Cinematic Universe anyway, and while it does focus a great deal on Gamora, it's mainly her in the context of her relationships with other male characters.
1: Yes, her her role in it is entirely as ancillary motivation for for two other for two male characters.
0: Yeah, so I I agree with you there. And, you know, Black Widow doesn't get much screen time, Scarlet Witch is mostly there as Vision's girlfriend. So that's unfortunate. Overall, though, I really, really liked it. I was very impressed that you could have so many main characters and so many plot lines and cram them all into one admittedly very long movie and still have it be coherent and engaging.
1: Well, and I also feel like this is a movie that in one particular way was just really, really tailored to the
0: Miles Stokes demographic. Oh god, the Thor stuff? Like, this is where I'm a little sad we're being spoiler-free because the Thor stuff was so freaking good. I actually made involuntary noises of emotion more than once during that movie, and it was kind of embarrassing because I think they were kind of loud, and like, my friends noticed who were sitting near me and stuff. But, you know, no regrets. Thor was incredibly well done. My complaints with Thor Ragnarok, with some of the stuff they didn't really focus on, I'm not gonna say they were all addressed by Infinity War, but they were addressed, like, a little and that was enough for me. And uh, oh, just, oh, if you like Thor and you haven't seen Infinity War, A, that's surprising, but B, uh, you probably should.
1: For those who haven't seen it, it is very much part one of two.
0: It definitely is. But yeah, kudos to the creators for doing some really big deal plot stuff. I'm curious to see where they go with it. And also, especially, mad kudos to Tom Holland for acting his goddamn spider heart out. He is the perfect Spider Man. Like, he's everything I want in a Spider Man. I love that kid playing that role. He is really lovely also
1: and this is such a small thing but i will overlook any number of problems for any piece of media where people repeatedly and incorrectly refer to dr strange as a wizard yes and this movie delivered this movie delivered and delivered on that front yeah it's 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 good the characterization of the characters who are in it and who are friends and center in it is very solid the visuals are spectacular if, if you are seeing people talk about how Thanos was right, they are incorrect and scary, but... No, Thanos is... Thanos evil. is wrong. Thanos is super, super wrong.
0: Meanwhile, J. Miles Explained the X-Men is a fully listener-supported podcast, and what keeps us ad-free and on the air are our Patreon donors, and people who donate at a certain level are acknowledged on air from a variety of fictional characters and concepts. Let's take it to the angry Claremontian narrator. Well, you've done it, Ryan
1: Tardiff. You beat the cyborg. You took out the time traveler and you raised the lab full of virulent viruses. Too bad you didn't think to confront that android army before you faced Sean Kearney. Without their advanced pan-cosmic gun explosion rays, you might as well be armed with nothing more than a leaf shield. And I am turning the mic over here to not sidestep, but a far greater villain, the one and only, or one of many if you count the bots, Dr. Doom.
0: To earn his inevitable and too merciful demise, that prattling imbecile sidestep wasted the inestimably valuable time of Doom, monarch of Latveria, master of sorcery and science in a multitude of ways. But none were worse than his assumption of the objects of my regal wrath. Our Excalibur Those prancing simpletons worthy of Doom's steely gaze? Nay, they are but British gnats to one such as Doom. Doom's only worthy adversaries are that fool Christopher Byram, that fool Barrick Marcus, and that fool Richards. And with that,
1: Jay and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter.
0: New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com.
1: Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every
0: episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, it's annual time in the Mojoverse. Wouldn't they call it Sweeps Week? Eh, Probably. Either way, though, we
1: are going to be explaining Shattershot.
0: Hope we survive the experience.